We would like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Jugara people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome to Leaving the Herd, the podcast that connects you to people making purposeful changes in their lives, both big and small, so they can live with more purpose, meaning and intention. Here are your hosts, Sloane Wilkins and Lucinda Ross. Hello. Welcome, Peter. Welcome to Leaving the Herd. Hi, hi, Lucinda. Hi, Sloane. How are you guys going? Really well, thanks. It's great <coughs> really, to have you here. That's really good. well. Thanks. thanks Thanks for bringing me in and listening to my story. Um, as you know, I love to chat. You do love to chat. And we <laughs> we always um, have such great chats when we meet each other in the street around where we where we live. So, um, Peter, it would be great to chat actually briefly before we get into it about how you and I met. Sure. Look, it, we both live in the same street um, and I have a little veggie garden that I grow out the front, always looking for people to give herbs to or excess veggies that are growing in the in the garden. And, and you happened to walk past one day with Max and I just stopped and we chatted briefly and I offered you some veggies and from there we just kept talking. Absolutely. My my dog, Max, my Dalmatian, gets along very well with Peter's dog, Esther, so they regularly, yeah. regularly um, <laughs> meet and greet. Um, but Peter is, I think you'll hopefully hear in this conversation, Peter is extremely community-minded, so it is by no surprise, um, it's not a surprise to me that the first time I met him was him giving me this lovely big wave and welcoming <laughs> me over to take some of his spinach or whatever it was you were growing at the time. Um, yeah, look, I, I love, we have a really, really good neighbourhood um, and the people here are all friendly and, and it's just just a lovely place to be. And, and I love to be able to give some of the crop away and just have chats with people as they walk past. And that's the sort of place that we live in. So, I mean, it was a bonus that I saw you walking past with a big flashing smile. <laughs> so I'd love to say hello. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. So good. So, Peter, we might get into it. Um, could you, you've got a fascinating story and have lived many different lives and iterations of your life, but I think really exemplify living with intention. But can you take us back to kind of your formative years, those early years, growing up in Brisbane, Australia? Yeah, look, um, so my story, I guess, starts um, with uh, migrant parents that came out from the war and moved to Australia, and we lived on a little peninsula that was five streets wide, at the beach on one side and the river on the other side. So growing up was amazing. It was a really uncomplicated time where we, I guess, we, yeah, respected the people who were around. We wanted to go to school, get that over and done with, get our trades and then go out and adventure and explore the world. Pretty much what happened. Um, I mean, it was 56 when I was born. So I was fortunate enough to grow up in the 70s and 80s and experience political change. Um, people, I guess, being intoxicated by um, artists like Bob Dylan and um, seeing the world change in a positive way. Um, we, I lived in a surfing culture, so from the time I was five years old, um, pretty much to about 20 years ago, it was spent in the water, um, as much as I could, travel around Australia a couple of times, did an apprenticeship as a roof tiler, um, <laughs> and I mean, the attitude from our parents was, we don't care what you do, get a trade because you always have something to go back to. And they were pretty spot on back then. So <clears throat> when we finished school, we spent six months on the beach, about eight of us didn't go to work. We got $7.50 a week on the dole. <laughs> and we pool that and we would get a couple of flagons of porter, bag of potatoes, build a big bonfire on the beach and surf for six months. And that's what we did. And then we got slapped around a bit by our parents. 
And so we had to go and get a job. But again, it was uncomplicated because companies were coming to schools and offering jobs, um, particularly apprenticeships. So we all became apprentices. As I said, I became a roof tiler. Friends became fitter and turners, boilermakers, um, electricians. So we all ended up doing a trade. Um, from there, as soon as our trades were finished, um, we decided to go on what I call safari, which was a bunch of blokes just buying an old station wagon, chucking the surfboards on the back, and we travelled around Australia a few times. But what we could do is we could turn up on a building site and just go and see the foreman and say, have you got any work? And they usually did, and we would work for two days, um, get a little pay packet with whatever we earned. That would be enough for petrol to move on to the next place, so we'd have a couple of weeks surfing again, next building site, go and get a job for a couple of days, get enough money, go away for another couple of weeks. So probably two or three years of our lives <coughs> were spent like that. Um, we got back home. And our parents kind of went, well, time maybe to settle down. <laughs> Didn't really know what that meant, but <laughs> I ended up <clears throat> falling into a little business as a roof tiler and, um, yeah, worked for a company as a contractor, which was like mega money for me. Um, at my age, didn't know what to do with it. But I ended up doing a school in Newcastle, which um, paid about $5,000 back in the 70s. And I booked a ticket to Europe, <laughs> didn't tell anyone, and just went home and said, hey, Mum, I'm off to Europe. <laughs> and, and I mean, by then she kind of just expected the unexpected with me, so... <laughs> So I went to Europe for six months and kind of hitchhiked around. I worked in a circus driving a train in Germany, not a train, a, um, a truck with a caravan on the back of it. So we would travel from town to town and put up the posters to let the towns know that the circus was coming. Um, I had two guys that were with me. Unbeknownst to me, one of the guys was an escapee from the French Foreign Legion. And every time we used to sit there and have coffee after we'd finished work, he would always be, be constantly looking around. Like, And I said to him one day, what are you checking on? <laughs> and he said, well, I escaped from the French Foreign Legion and they've probably got a couple of guys coming around to kill me. <laughs> and I went, well, can you sit over there? Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> A little bit of distance is yeah, a good thing. Yeah, like I wasn't a hero, so <laughs> safety first. But I mean, even travelling through Europe, it was just, just an experience. Unfortunately, you guys won't get today, but I could hitchhike around, um, picked up work um, while I was travelling around. Um, people just just had this laid-back, carefree attitude, 70s attitude. I remember I had long hair. Um, I had an earring, I had my guitar because I did a bit of busking and I remember going across the border into Berlin uh, on a train and the um, like the immigration people kind of stopped you to check and because I had long hair and, and an earring, they automatically just went, you're a drug addict and hippie, we're going to body search you and give you a really hard time which they did. Um, wasn't a pleasant experience, but I went and got a haircut straight away. <laughs> I <laughs> took the hair, the earring out and just travelled around. But the people were amazing too. I mean, it was just a really relaxed, I guess. Um, it was a safer place to be um, than what today um, gives us. So, yeah, so I did that. Um, I came back and after six months with some great stories from mates. And anyway, from there, I decided to um, hang around for a little bit, do a bit of work, save some money and then take off again. And so a friend of mine and I, um, yeah, we had an old combi. We just jumped in that with a bit of money. I mean, there was never a plan B. It was just plan A, so you never had savings or things like that because work was so easy 
to get. You could just drive all around. He was a steel fixer, which meant he could walk on a building site and get work at any time. So, so yeah, we were travelling around and we ended up on the Gold Coast um, and we stayed stayed with a couple of guys on the coast. There was always like a notice board with little ads that said we're looking for somebody to pay, share the rent with and stuff like that. Or else you'd go to the beach and you just start talking to people and they'd go, oh, yeah, we know a guy that's looking for a couple of guys to live with them. And so that's kind of where our accommodation came in. And so we, we ended up with this um, big Russian guy. He was a character and um, stayed there for a couple of months. And then the friend that I was with said, look, I know a girl in Brisbane that um, – would you like to come up and we'll see if we can, you know, hang around there for a couple of days? And I kind of went, there's no surf in Brisbane. I really don't want to go. <laughs> and anyway, he talked me into it. And, and the plan was to, she couldn't meet us, but her flatmate um, said that she could meet us at the Malcolmat Hotel. So we turned up at the hotel Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of this, this average-looking guy and this mate of mine looked a bit like Tom Cruise, so if there was ever any female attention, I just kind of went about because I knew it wasn't going to be me, it was going to be him. Anyway, we turned up to the pub and this beautiful woman was sitting there, long blonde hair, blue eyes, and just, just dropped her gorgeous and and it was her flatmate, mate's friend. So he kind of started the conversation. I just sat back and she kept directing the conversation to me and I went, this is really weird. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I kind of got that she, yeah, she was more interested in me than Dave. And so, so anyway, we kind of got, got to know each other and then within the course of a couple of days, we were kind of together. And then I didn't want to go back to the Gold Coast. I wanted to stay and, and explore this new feeling that I had. Um, and, and her name was Lisa. And so we knew each other for six weeks and decided to get married. And we did after we found a church that would let us get married. And so we got married and started started this amazing journey together. And um, we had 20 years of, I, I guess, for me, it was a perfect relationship. We were, I mean, there was never a time that I didn't want to come home and see her. I just, she just wanted to be in my life all the time and, and she felt the same. And we, we kind of built, um, built a life together. We had a couple of kids. Um, we didn't argue with each other. Um, we talked to each other like best friends. So I think that's what made it work, the fact that our friendship <clears throat> was as big as what our love um, was. So it was always going to be an enduring um, relationship. So, yeah, we, we had 20 years and we I went through probably 50 or 60 different jobs trying to work out what I was going to do because I didn't want to be a roof tiler anymore. Um, being a roof tiler was short term. I think by the time you turn 35, 40, your back's had it, things like that. Yes, so, yes. so anyway, I went through this whole series of um, back then you would walk into Centrelink at 7 o'clock in the morning and they would want probably companies would ring Centrelink. And so we need three guys for a week or we need two people for two days. So made friends with the, um, with the guy in Centrelink and then he would come over and say, we've got a week. Um, it's in a factory just stacking drums on a pallet or whatever it was at the time, which was really good for me because I wanted to see what factory work was like, what, I mean, I was just working outside all the time. So... <clears throat> So from there, 
um, after going through a lot of jobs and unfortunately I got offered full-time jobs with some of these places that I hated. <laughs> so I had to say, no, look, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm exploring my possibilities. <laughs> so I ended up with a clerical job, my first clerical job, and I mean, I finished school um, before I finished year 10 and education wasn't kind of really there for me. I didn't really know what an introvert or an extrovert was and things like that. Anyway, I went for an interview um, for a clerical job as a dispatch clerk and talked me way into that job, um, <laughs> convinced the guy that I knew what I was doing and got to the job and the first thing that, that I had to look at was an invoice. I had no idea what an invoice was. So anyway, I managed to make friends with a guy that kind of showed me the way through that. And so that was my first real job, I guess, after roof tiling. And from there, um, I became a purchasing officer. I became a sales rep. Um, at the end, I became a manufacturing manager. And from there, I started my business. I went out consulting on customer service, um, which was a pretty big thing for me. Um, I kind of understood the good customer service brought business. Um, a lot of people these days, unfortunately, don't understand that. Um, so I did that for a while with one of the biggest companies in Australia. I went around and basically showed people what customer service was and, and how to um, present that in in terms of relationships with customers. So that was successful. Then I got asked um, if I'd like to go out on a contract basis, taking over a service division warranty, um, that type of thing. So I did that, um, invested in a small truck. And that was a hard thing because we had to wait three months for our first pay and I was having to like, pay for petrol. and But again, we had that nest egg, so we kind of nearly chewed that nest egg up, got our first pay after three months, and then we expanded a little bit. And, and life was really, really good. I mean, I kind of got the stage where I didn't have to actually work. I had a few people working for me, and um, so that was the goal, so that um, I didn't have to work. Um, I could just sit back, I mean, still be involved in the nitty-gritty. The guys who worked for me got paid well, they were really good guys. So, um, so I had a lot of free time, but the hard work went in before I got to that stage. So, yeah, I mean, we a funny thing happened when we got to that point that we, we were actually out looking at investment properties um, up the Sunshine Coast and and really excited about our future. I mean, work was never exciting for me, um, but at the end of the day, it was exciting. I um, had a, two kids that were um, both really, really good kids. Um, and so we're looking towards the future. And we had a house, the second house that we bought, um, front of an environmental park. And so what would happen was every day that we came home from work, um, Lisa and I and the kids begrudgingly <laughs> would do a walk through the environmental forest. And there was a couple of days where Lisa was a little bit unsteady, her balance wasn't there, she said she'd been feeling tired. And... So she went to the GP and he just said, oh, you've got some sort of virus. And I mean, this went on for about six months. And at that time, I was doing um, cloning on contracts for commercial work, which was really good business. Um, so I was kind of involved, but I was also busy, which I now regret. Mm. But back then, it was just part of our life. Um, but after the period of time where she kind of started getting worse rather than better right. with the balance and things like that, um, I, I went to the doctor with her and, and said, this can't be a virus. This has been going on too long. Um, I need 
need to get some tests done. And anyway, he was kind of a bit blase about it, but eventually um, I was able to talk him into getting an MRI done for Lisa. So I remember being... I had a client that I was at lunch with and my daughter, who was 15 at the time, went with Lisa to to get the MRI done. And she rang me and said, you better come home, Dad, there's something wrong. And, we, and I could hear Lisa crying in the background. And I remember I didn't even say anything to this guy. I just got up and left. Um and I'm not sure he was probably still sitting there, but I just I was speechless. I couldn't say anything. My yeah. first reaction was there's something wrong in the family, get home. Anyway, so I got home and Lisa had been diagnosed with MS um, and it was a rapid progressive form of MS, which pretty much saw her from... Um, reasonably normal walking around to wheelchair within a six-month period, which was devastating. And and because MS is a disease that there's no real, um, I guess, information about how to assist or, sorry, to defeat the disease, um, it was one of those things where the specialists, when we went and saw the neurologist, said, but this this is pretty heavy-duty stuff. It's rapid progressive. Um, probably seven years is the outcome um, for Lisa's lifespan. That organ failure, all those things will happen within a seven-year period. So, I mean, life changed literally at a heartbeat for us. Um, so what came after that was, a, was another journey, and it was, for me to make a decision on what we were going to do. I mean, there's a lot of people with a lot of advice out there, but at the end of the day, you follow your heart on things like that. Um, Because of the business and the equipment and things like that, I was kind of mortgaged to the hilt, um, paying these things off. And so I knew that we would pretty much lose everything if I walked out of the business. Um, But I did that have no regrets um, doing that. So the banks came in like vultures and took everything away. Um, the kids, fortunately, had just finished school at the time, but it, it had a huge impact um, on the kids as well because we were a close family, and particularly my daughter who was close with Lisa. Um, so then it was about, okay, what comes next? But I found that we had a system that didn't really let you do that. You got got kind of chained down to, I guess, what the politicians call a safety net, which is welfare. Um, but what they do is they put massive restrictions in what you can actually earn, um, as well as getting a carer's payment. I was only allowed to earn $170 back then a fortnight before I started losing money, which meant that anything over $170 um, a fortnight, I would lose 50 cents in the dollar, plus I'd have to pay tax on it and fuel. So I'd end up with about maybe 10 cents in the dollar um, after earning that. So it, I mean, apart from the restriction of me not being able to leave Lisa because by then she was high-level care, um, which which meant that I was showering her, I was changing her, um, pretty much doing everything for her. So, and then when I started trying to access resources, um, always got the same story, that there was not enough funding, um, that the budget didn't have anything there, so we spent 10 years, just me and Lisa. Um, so we went through the first battle of finding accommodation um, that we could afford on the settling payments. 
So we ended up at Wynnum, um, which was a great place to live at the time. Um, and then we set up a budget and the budget was pretty slim. So I ended up taking a um, early morning newspaper run, which got me up at two o'clock in the morning. I went through newspapers. I think I got about $80 a week for that, but it helped. Um, it just paid, helped pay some of the bills. But you didn't have any backup. So when the car broke down, um, I didn't have the money to fix the car. And because we'd gone through bankruptcy, I couldn't go to a bank and get a loan. So what happened was these loan sharks were out there that would give you money at 150% interest. And at times you had to take that on. Um, I never asked friends for financial assistance. I also never asked the kids um, to care for Lisa because I wanted them to have their own lives. Um, so the, the 10 years of isolation, um, it, it was third world country stuff. It really was. And um, I couldn't get any help through the government. I, I did find out through the system that they prioritised people. There was never enough money and money and disability. Um, so, so the resources I had were non-existent, um, couldn't get that. Um, there were societies around help that couldn't help. So I kind of gave up after a while. I just, it just felt like I was being beaten down by everyone. And, um, so, so after 10 years, um, I ended up having a major breakdown um, and ended up in hospital. And I, I think during that time you lose your existence, um, your identity. So you, when I say identity, we, it, I became Lisa's carer and Everyone we met, the focus was always around Lisa. So I kind of didn't have an identity. I was just a tool in that, that part of it. And then you realise that you're not living, you're just existing day to day. Um, and there's still, I guess there's still a lot of fire in the belly at that stage. But it felt like somebody had a bucket of water and they were throwing water over it. And... And yeah, so 10 years of that life just took everything I had. And how and, old were you by this stage, Pat? Sorry, how old were you by this stage? When, Me? yeah, when that when the 10 years oh, I was 45, yeah, so still really a young yeah. man, yeah. So I was, and that's why I thought that I could get everything back. But I mean, what I served up, um through the system by the government was um, back of lies. And, and I thought that uh, in, like when the, after the, after I had the breakdown, um, I couldn't cope um, with looking after Lisa. Um, not, not because I didn't want to, it just, I physically and emotionally had nothing left. And we had this, I can only call it a magical moment um, that happened after I got back home. So, sorry, I'll just go back one step. At the time, I had mum and dad came to Brisbane and mum was in a wheelchair. I found out dad had brain cancer and so for two years I was kind of looking after them and Lisa at the same time. And dad died. And so that kind of left me with mum. And I just said, look, we probably need nursing home care. So we, we took her to this nursing home, which was a really, really nice place. It was Blue Cared um, down the coast. And they knew about my situation with Lisa. So for me to visit mum, I'd take Lisa and anyway, the manager of the nursing home and I became friends and she said to me, 
um, after I had the breakdown. She said, Pete, if you need to, we'll look after Lisa. She said, I promise we'll take care of her. Yeah. Um, so I had that there and, and I thought, oh, I, really, I really need to talk about this to somebody. And so one afternoon there used to be a program on the radio called The Drive Show on 4BC and Mike Smith was the compare of The Drive Show. So anyway, I rang up Smithy because on top of everything else, I had double hernia and I got told I had to wait five years to get an operation. Wow. So I rang up and the producer, um, I basically told her about the, the situation for carers in general, um, not having access to medical, carers getting around with bad backs and waiting years for operations. Yes, and yes. And we're also saving the taxpayer $8 billion a year by caring for people. So I ended up having a chat to Smithy on air and Smithy wanted to run with it. <clears throat> so we had two weeks on air um, talking about the issues that um, carers have. Smithy knew nothing about, sorry, he knew about what had happened for the last 10 years. And yeah, so so we had two weeks of on the air. We had, I mean, the phones went wild because of families that have um, people in the situation, same situation, and and a conversation that rarely gets talked about. Um, looking at the role of carers, what they sacrifice. Um, I mean, not just emotionally, but financially, and all those sort of things and the lack of support that they get um, from the government. Um, so, so we, yeah, we had a great two weeks and, and I told Smithy at that stage that I would have to relinquish care um, because I just could no longer do what I was doing. Mm. Um, and so during that, the course of that, the interviews, um, and the pressure from the general public, we ended up with Judy Spence, who was then the minister. Um, she got on air and said that, because we're also living in Lisa's mother's garage, because <laughs> we couldn't afford rent. Oh, goodness. She came on and said, look, we've wanted, we've listened to the story and would like to offer Peter and Lisa um, housing would also like to offer um, a recurring um, funding package that we'll see Lisa get taken care of by support workers. Um, and I mean, this all came in one day and within an hour I got a phone call from the nursing home to say, we've got a bed for Lisa, Pete, do you want to go ahead? So everything changed again in, in a split second and it was this one phone call that I made before I decided to put Lisa um, into care and it just happened to be Smithy who's just an amazing guy and we ended up becoming friends and um, and from there we got quite a hit with the media. We got Channel 7 Current Affair today, tonight. So we kind of ran with the whole care of this year um, at the time and I was kind of not the best person to be politically <laughs> involved in speaking I guess because I mean when Judy Spence offered us this package I said look I mean this is great it's 10 years down the track and I said and it's media magic it's because of the media that it's even come to your attention what about all the other people that are exactly. out there yeah. going? And Smithy was kind of kicking me under the table. <laughs> so we probably need to be a little bit more diplomatic, Pete. Um, you became so, a real advocate. You started to, yeah, you started to talk more and more, didn't you then? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess talking about that experience because it, it was, as I said, it was third world country stuff. I felt like. <clears throat> for that 10 years I'd been in a coma. 
I went out, I remember the first time, the first time I had support, um, I had six hours that day where I could do what I wanted to do. And I didn't know what to do um, because I hadn't done anything for 10 years and I went, what do I do with this time now? You'd just been caught up and every minute was yeah. spoken for previously to that, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was just, I ended up going to lunch and this friend said, do you want to have sushi? And I said, what's sushi? <laughs> I didn't know what sushi was. Sushi had come years, like, years ago. But, I mean, that's what I mean about um, existing. You don't get to see the changes in the world that have happened. So it was like waking up from a coma mm. after 10 years, going out and going, well, I didn't know that was there. I didn't know you could buy that. And I had no idea because for 10 years it was 24 hours 7. What did, um, what did you do yeah. with that? Yeah, well, what what happened then with with Lisa as well in the care situation? So how did that evolve? Oh, look, the um, the care situation was was amazing. We ended up with this um, support coordinator who came in and sat down and talked to me and said, what do you need? And I said, well, I just need somebody to give me a break from caring for Lisa. And the package that we got was pretty good for disability service in those days. Um, so, so we introduced, went through a process of interviewing support workers because Lisa, I couldn't come home and Lisa didn't have the ability to say, I've had a bad day, that person was not good to me because Lisa lost her short-term memory. So she was pretty much the most vulnerable person in Australia because she couldn't tell me if something bad had happened. So we had to find people that we could trust. Mm -hmm. And it took me quite a while before I could walk out of that place and know that she was being taken care of in the right way. Um, so there, there's, again, a process of finding the right people, building a team, building the trust, um, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm fortunate that I kind of treat people the way I want it to be treated. So there's never been, oh, I'm a chief. There's never a hierarchy in there. It was all about us all being there to achieve the same thing. So I became part of that team rather than the boss. And I could facilitate the things that they needed to keep them safe, um, to make sure Lisa got what she needed. So my role changed and I became more of a facilitator rather than hands-on. So, But their time at the house was short, so I then took over at night. I mean, during that first 10 years, we didn't have a wheelchair, we didn't have a hoist, so... I used to have to pick Lisa up and put her to bed. Everything I did was physical. One of the units that we had, um, that we lived in, had two flights of stairs. And the reason I took that unit was we could see the ocean. And I thought that would be great for Lisa to be able to sit there in the sun, look at the water. Um, but I had to carry her. <laughs> up those flights of stairs um, every day. So there were 14 stairs, I still remember, <laughs> and then get her into a chair. Um, and, I mean, the wheelchair, we couldn't even get that through the government. Um, that was something that my mum had to pay for or did pay for, offered to pay for. So we, we did that. So, I mean, it was... Yeah, it was moving from that scenario to all of a sudden we have all this help. Um, it, I guess for me, it changed me. It changed who I was. It made me a better person. I met amazing people in in disability, um, carers. Um, it made me reflect on when things were great for Lisa and I because, I mean, Lisa was the ultimate extrovert. 
and she could go to a funeral and make people smile at a funeral. She was just that sort of person. And we had a, a fairly, fairly big social circle. Um, when Lisa got sick, it came down to two friends that kind of stayed there with us through that journey. I don't blame those people. They just don't know how to deal with change. I mean, if, because some people, some friends had haunted houses and they were worried that we couldn't get Lisa up when we had the barbecues. And there are all sorts of reasons. And then eventually you would stop getting phone calls from these people. And and so, you, you know, you think about how great it is to have all of these friends, but it, it, I guess it's pretty superficial, um, a lot of friendships when... When things go bad, you find out who your friends are. That's when you find out what the depth of those friendships actually is. Exactly, yeah. And and you don't know. I mean, none of us expect these things to happen to us. But And there's no preparation. Um, I mean, before Lisa got sick, I was pr- pretty ignorant, like most of us, towards disability or carers do, things like that. Um because we were living this great life and we had this future and we had the goals and the ambitions um, and then everything changed. And so it was like a reset for me, um, particularly values. Values were really important. They never really change, but it changed me. It got me back to where I was when life was uncomplicated. I just had one focus, that was Lisa, um, the kids as well. How has it changed you as a person, these health challenges that Lisa has had? You obviously, it's been hugely transformational. How would you? Oh, that's, as as I said, I believe it's made me a better person. It's made me a more compassionate person given me the ability to, I guess, rewire um, the brain on how I see things. I see things differently now. I'm more grateful for things. I have an amazing group of friends in my life. Um, the, I, I guess, I, I set up, I probably won't use the word mantra, but I live by a couple of rules um, in life. And, I mean, they kind of changed a little bit um, as, as we went along. But, I mean, the first rule was never to make things complicated because life can get way too serious. Um, <laughs> that's, that's where you get thrown in to the gifts of life and we lose perspective on the things that are really important in life. So I guess that was the first thing um, that changed for me. And then the other thing changed for me was my, my, I guess, vision and ability to start putting in to the, to the um, planet, whether that be in a physical way um, or advocating whatever I could do to help other people. I, I guess I'm really interested in um, the what you've shared with us and so many fantastic streams there. And with regard to MS for, for Lisa, look, you you wouldn't wish that on anyone. It sounds like it's been really challenging. But I, I'm interested in what have been the, the positive impact for yourself and Lisa out of that changes because there's there's always something in there. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, people would ask me about how tough it's been um, to look after Lisa. And I mean, there's never a question with me. She is my soulmate, so it's always going to be there. But when you, when you look at it in the right way, um, the positives I brought that out, if you said to me, would you change anything? I said, I'd love it if Lisa never got MS. What has it done to me? It changed me. It's made me a better person. It's given me perspective that I would, wouldn't have had. Um, it, it's helped me build, um, I, I guess, a database for other people that, 
that they can use as well. Um, so for me, there's so many positives that have come out of it that I can't ignore that. And, I mean, people can get stuck on the bad times. And if you do that, then life's over. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to move away from that. You need to start pulling out the positive things. I've got great friends. I've got a great life now. Sure, it was a battle. And, and Lisa's doing it tough. Lisa's happy. And she's still making other people happy. And that was my whole goal was to make sure that whatever life Lisa had, she would have a good life. And she's got that. And that makes me feel that I've done something good as well. So there's always a positive in every every negative. Um, It's what you take out of it that really matters. Yeah. Well done, mate. And I think, you know, it would have been um, very easy and understandable to let the situation crush one's spirit. It definitely hasn't done that for you from what you're talking about there. In fact, it feels like you've opened up and there's been more of you to share with others out there. You've been an advocate for for carers' issues and helping to shine a light on, on some of those issues. And Today, fortunately, we have the NDIS. Like I'm sure it's not a system that's perfect. No system actually is. However, we're we're moving hopefully in the right direction there. Yeah. And um, what's what's your sense of, of that these days yeah, for carers? Look, I, I mean, I I just love the fact that people got out and fought for the NDIS. It was a long time in coming. It was, it was part of what I was screaming to the world about as well. That we don't have the resources, but. The crazy part of that was that it didn't make sense for people to go to nursing homes. The cost of putting somebody in the nursing home and the taxpayer was far more than helping somebody look after somebody at home. And I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work that out. And unfortunately, the government kind of got stuck on that. And we were seeing you know, kids were seeing 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds all stuck in nursing homes and because there was no support out there, I, I helped one lady get respite 12 years with an autistic child that never got one day off and I helped her get respite for a son. And, I mean, they, they were the horror stories before the NDIS and then, I mean, I was part of the crowd marching through the city with the NDIS and things like that. And, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's bloody good. And, I mean, people now have somewhere to go and hopefully we'll see a reduction in the amount of people that have to spend years and years and years sitting in nursing homes. Well done, mate. Yeah. Incredible story. Thank you so much, Peter. What an amazing, yeah, what an amazing tale of resilience and living with intention you yeah i see lisa and and peter around around a bit and the big smiles on their faces it's you're doing you're doing something right that's for sure (laughs) you know taking those split second changes that you ran into multiple times and actually making the best of them and that sense of resilience and compassion that's come through and being intentional about your outlook. I just absolutely love that. And I think there's so much for our audience to take away from your story. Yeah. I guess importantly, just for all of us, we live every day and we, we do have to remember that life can change in a heartbeat. So if we don't enjoy our life now, there's a possibility that down the track, you're going to be forced to not have that life that you had. So forget about all that other background stuff. Wake up in the morning and just enjoy what you got today. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Beautiful. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. How did you think that went, Sloan? How did you enjoy the chat with Peter? I loved listening to Peter and uh, interesting conversation because it was one of those ones where I really felt like I didn't want to interrupt because Peter was just in such a flow state of giving his knowledge and sharing his story that it was a little bit mesmerizing to be sitting across the table from him. Me too. I barely said a word. That's how I normally am with Peter. He is quite, as you say, mesmerizing and just such 
wisdom and talking about those challenges that he's gone through, despite all of those, he's really managed to thrive and find meaning in every moment. You can tell that despite all of that, he's got this unwavering positivity and he's a great example of how we can all kind of respond to change in our life. Yeah, I think so. And I was, as you were talking then, just thinking, I know so many people whose life circumstances should give them the level of satisfaction and happiness that Peter seems to emanate, I suppose yeah. is the right word there. And yet that's not the way that they're living. That's not the way that they're experiencing their life. And here is a guy whose story is just such a, so incredibly challenging. So many things he has come up against and come out the other side of and just has this incredible outlook that, um, you know, I would love to take that outlook that he's got and just plug it into my life. And that's uh, some really great insights for me. Is there any key takeaways from your perspective, Lucinda? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you said, Sloane, his positivity, he's such a, a beacon of light. And I think if we can all take something away from what Peter said today, it would be that through change comes not only challenges and difficulties, but sometimes a much more rewarding and satisfying and purposeful life. Yeah, I think we can all take a leaf out of Peter's book. Yeah, agreed. And for me, two key things, I think, the fact that split second changes can come at any time and Peter was really clear about that and sometimes they're things that we wouldn't welcome and other times they mean that we're able to step forward with more confidence and we were talking with him afterwards there as well and made the reference to the point that sometimes a breakdown actually gets us to the point where we can make a breakthrough. And for Peter, that totally seemed to be the case. He took it all upon himself, but he got to that point where he just couldn't continue. And yet that became the catalyst for so much positive change for himself and other people being intentional and leaning into that. So what an incredible guy. We hope you got lots out of that interview and as much out of it as we have. And thank you so much for for listening, for the support of this podcast. We're still in our early days and we really appreciate all of those people who've been tuning in and, and giving us feedback along the way as well. Keep it coming. Yep. Love it. Well done. And thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to Leaving the Herd. If you enjoyed this episode, click follow. Leaving a review helps others find the podcast. And join us next time for more insightful conversations.